Good morning, LifePoint Church. Awesome to see you today on this uh, snowy morning. Uh, you ever notice how it gets into a pattern? Like if it starts to snow and then it's like one week and then it's the same day. And, but why Saturday nights and Sunday mornings? I mean, I just, Lord, why, why does it happen that way? Uh, I don't know, but we're so glad to be together. Glad you're here on our live stream as well or on YouTube. And, and I guess if you're a snow lover, I mean, throw up like a snowman emoji or something. Do something. Uh, but we're glad to be together. Glad you're here. Glad you've braved the weather here in person. And uh, looking forward to this series that we're jumping back into in the book of Nehemiah. And we started this series last year. We got into it a little bit, and then boom, got derailed by the pandemic. So we're revisiting it. And it's fascinating how themes writ, dealt, that dealt with real-life issues 3,000 years ago, when they come from God's Word, are relevant to our day and age. And how the themes have changed since last year to this year, and still, we look at this book, and I just shake my head and say, it's unreal how God's Word is powerful. It's living, it's active, and it has something in season to say to our lives. Now, Nehemiah is the book we're looking at, and so you can read that in the Old Testament. And Nehemiah lived in a time of tremendous turmoil, upheaval, and his world was basically in ruins, and there's a lot of application we can see to our own life as well. But before we get into that, I want to set the stage a little bit for Nehemiah and who he was. Nehemiah was not a priest. He was not a prophet. He was not an ecclesiastical figure at all. He was not really in a religious role, but he was a passionate, devoted man of God who loved God and loved his nation, loved his people, the people of Israel. And he lived out this passionate faith in the context of his job, which was a unique job, serving the king of Persia. So we're going to be unpacking that over the next couple weeks. But Nehemiah went to his job serving the king of Persia every day and every week with a very heavy heart. He went to his job regularly with this kind of lingering angst, this anxiety in his own life because his world was not right. Things were not turning out in a good direction, and he was very anxious and upset. You see, as a, a man of God, a man who loved God, he realized that the story of his own people, the Jewish people, was a story of failure, that as he looked back over the last decades over and over again, Israel, his people, had turned from God and rejected God. And as a result, they, they squandered their opportunities and they lived below the level of blessing God intended for their lives. Their story was one of pain and brokenness, and that became his story as well. Years earlier, Israel had been conquered by a great nation, the nation of Babylon. And for 70 years, they had been subjugated to Babylon's rule. And back in the old times, ancient times, greater nations, powerful and conquering nations, would take the people that they've conquered and bring them into exile. So if you come across that concept in the Old Testament of exile, it's a big deal. It means basically that the cities, the prominent cities are destroyed, and that's what happened. The prominent city of Jerusalem was destroyed. It was reduced to rubble. Its walls crumbled. The temple within it was destroyed as well, which was a significant loss for the people. 
The amount of land they had as a people shrunk and was eventually completely taken away. And all the people, especially those who were prominent and had talent, were, were removed from their homeland and sent to Babylon as foreigners in a land that was not their own. It was a horrible time. It was a terrible time. But soon, after several decades, 70 years in captivity in Babylon, another nation came along, the nation of Persia, and conquered Babylon. And they were more favorable towards the Israelites and said, listen, you can go back to your native lands. Go back to your native lands and, and go back there and settle in and refine your roots. And so Persia allowed that to happen. Then groups of people that lived Israelites Jewish men and women and families started going back to their home country slowly but surely. We read about prophets, Haggai and Zechariah. We read about Ezra, who led a group of exiles back to Jerusalem, and they rebuilt the temple in Jerusalem. They started thinking about spiritual things again when they had neglected God for the longest time. The prophets said, come back to God, return to God. They were working on it. They were thinking about it. But things still were not right. The temple itself had been restored, but the walls in Jerusalem were still broken. The gates of the city had been burned to the ground. The people were vulnerable. Bad things could happen at any moment. Lots of enemies were out there outside the city seeking to destroy the Jewish people. All this was taking place when Nehemiah showed up on the scene. The two books of Ezra and Nehemiah are at one point were one book. They were combined, but they've been separated now. And they tell the story of Jerusalem in disarray. And this faithful Jewish man felt like he was living in utter ruins. We read about that in Nehemiah chapter 1, verse 1 through 4. We read about his despair over this broken world. It says this, that the words of Nehemiah, son of Hakala, in the month of Kislev in the 20th year, while I was in the citadel of Susa, Hanani, one of my brothers, came from Judah with some other men, and I questioned them about the Jewish remnant that had survived the exile. So these are people still back in Babylon. These are still people that have not come back to their homeland. And, and so Nehemiah is questioning about, like, what's, how are they doing? How are they doing in this foreign land? And he's talking to Hanani, who turns out to be his brother. And he asked some questions about the Jewish remnant. And they said to me, those who survived the exile and are back in the province are in great trouble and disgrace. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down and its gates have been burned with fire. When I heard these things, I sat down and I wept. Here's a man who passionately loves God. Here's a man who passionately loves his people and knows that, that the Israelites, the Jewish people, have been God's special chosen people, and yet their lives are broken and in disarray. Their precious city, the core of who they were, Jerusalem itself, was in rubble, its walls destroyed, its gates burned. And he took all this in, this world in ruins, and this strong, capable, competent man just sat down. And he cried. He wept. You know, it's interesting about, you know, this world that he lived in, the world of ruins, and how historically that happens, and we can read about it and study about it and learn about it 
and figure out how to respond to it because we also live in a world that feels like it's in ruins. And we go through seasons of this, but we're definitely in the season of that now. That we kind of look at our society, and there's a lot of people today who will say that they feel like our, our nation, our society is in decline, that it's in disarray, and that it's, if it's not in ruins now, it, it appears to be heading in that direction. Uh, a recent Gallup poll pretty much confirmed that. It found that only 11% of Americans, this was in, in January, this poll was taken, 11% of Americans feel that the country is heading in the right direction. So this is not just a political thing, you know, Democrats or Republicans. This is across the board, just this inner angst and concern about politicians. They can't work at things. There's no ability to solve problems. There's question as well that many raise about Judeo-Christian values that we've seen a, a different value system emerge. And are we going towards the precipice? A lot of people wonder about that. Gallup measures uh, what they call satisfaction. It's the optimal goal to maximize citizens' social and political well-being. And with that in mind, Gallup writes this. It's clear that American society is not doing so well as it has been 17 years since more than half of Americans reported being satisfied with the state of the nation. So some are concerned, many concerned, most are very concerned about ruins emerging around us. But that can also be way more than just societal. It can be personal as well. There are times in our lives when we look at the decisions we've made or the paths we've taken and, and how maybe we've dabbled with our own darkness and we've kind of ruined ourselves. We've created rubble. We find ourselves in, in a situation that is perilous and sometimes we feel that maybe that rubble around us, that rubble that's on top of us, has basically robbed us of any future. Sometimes we, we look at the, the burnt gates of Jerusalem and feel like that we've burned something precious or important to the ground ourselves, that we've done that. And we look at our lives and say, is this damage, is this rubble, is this brokenness, is this irreparable? Could I never recover from this? And, and the great news really is that we can, that God can repair. God can restore. God can clear this rubble. And this is something we struggle with. What is the way forward? Too often we beat ourselves up with shame and guilt. And we feel like we can't move into the future very well. We wonder if what has been burned to the ground could ever be rebuilt. But God says, absolutely it can. In fact, the future can be far better than we ever, ever imagined. But Nehemiah is dealing with deep anxiety over the state of his nation and the situation that he's dealing with in his own life. And his response to the bad news is fascinating and interesting. It's found in verse four through nine. When I heard these things, the ruins around me, the rubble that's accumulating, the, the fact that things that are important to me have been burnt to the ground. When I heard these things, I sat down and I wept. For some days I mourned and fasted and prayed before the God of heaven. Then I said, O Lord, God of heaven, the great and awesome God who keeps his covenant of love with those who love him and obey his commands. Let your ear be attentive and your ears open to hear the prayer your servant is praying 
before you day and night, your servant, the people of Israel. I confess the sins we Israelites, including myself and my father's house, have committed against you. We have acted very wickedly toward you. We have not obeyed the commands, decrees, and laws you gave your servant Moses. Remember the instruction you gave your servant Moses, saying, if you're unfaithful, I will scatter you among the nations. But if you return to me and obey my commands, then even if your exiled people are at the farthest horizon, I will gather them from there and bring them to the place I have chosen as a dwelling place for my name. Here, Nehemiah spills his guts. It's the cry of his heart. And, and, and it's interesting here that when we face ruins, we kind of ask some fundamental questions. You ask them, and I, and I ask them too. And back then, Nehemiah asks them, and, and people in his day did too. And the fundamental questions are, are God, you know, where are you in the midst of my ruins, in the midst of the debris in this world? Where are you, God? And we also ask, you know, you know God, do you see? Do you care? Do you understand? Are you aware and alert to what's going on? Why did this happen? If you can see, then why is it happening? And then ultimately, God, what's the way out of this? How do I find healing? How do I move forward? It also, these are fundamental questions. And there are two words in this prayer that Nehemiah prays that begin to give us some answers as to who God is and what he is like and how we proceed out of the ruins and rubble in our own lives. The two words are very important. The first is the word covenant. In verse five, O Lord, the God of heaven, the great and awesome God who keeps his covenant. The word in Hebrew is berit. It's one of the most important words in the Old Testament that we need to understand to make sense of what God is doing, to make sense of God's plan, and to make sense on how we proceed out of the rubble and ruin of our own lives. It describes for us the path forward. Now, in ancient times and in our day, a covenant could be understood in different ways. It could be understood, first of all, as, as an agreement, a contractual agreement that business people would, would sign up for. So in other words, you make a con contract on the business side of things and you're equals and you kind of make this contract and so one person does one thing and it's mutually beneficial and the other person does another and you agree on the details of that. Well, that's not what we're talking about here that it's not an agreement between two equal people and it's not a contract either, that somehow we do our part and follow the fine print and that kind of stuff. It's like, wow, I fine print. God's way better at fine print than me, so that's kind of tricky. And so we think, well, we have some kind of uh, spiritual you know, contract with God that we've got to uphold, but that's not what this is. A covenant also in ancient times uh, often involved unequal parties, it would be a king who defeated somebody and the defeated foe would then sign a covenant saying that I will uh, do what you say and you'll spare my life. So in other words, it's unequal parties and, and uh, I'll, I'll, I'll do what you say and if I do that, then as a defeated soldier, you won't kill me. 
And sometimes we think, well, that's how God is too, that God is way more powerful than me. And therefore, you know, I'm just kind of, I have this spiritual surrender that I have to uphold and, and I'm going to follow through with this and maybe God won't knock me off. That's not what it's saying either here. The covenant, the berit, is actually the coming together and binding of two parties in a close relationship that both protect, that both value, and that ultimately leads to prosperity. This is the biblical covenant God has in mind here. It is not contractual. It's not about language. It's about relationship. God wants more than anything else for us to have a relationship with him. And that's where this comes from. And the relationship is not between two equal parties, two very unequal parties, because God is the one who gives us grace. God is the one who pours out his goodness. God is the one who pours out his favor first and then asks us to respond. So then we have a role after God initiates the covenant of responding in a way where we too protect and value that relationship. It's the berit, the covenant. The descriptor for this is also very important. It's not just a covenant, it's a covenant of love. This is one of the biggest, most important words also in the Old Testament. It is the word hesed. It speaks of the loyal love of God. It speaks of how God is immensely committed to us that he loves us, he initiates the covenant, he gives to us his grace before we even respond, and now he asks something of us that we too would value that relationship and pursue a close bond with him. It comes down to this, that God is motivated to initiate a relationship, and he asks human beings to do their part, to prosper, to bless, and protect that closeness that he craves and he desires for us. And we see this play out in different places in the Bible. There are multiple covenants. There's the covenant of creation, for example, where we don't see the word berit in the first five, cha first five chapters of the book of Genesis. We don't see the word berit, but the concept actually has its, it originates in the creation covenant, where God himself does this very thing. God himself comes along and initiates creation. He creates you. He blesses you. He pours out uh, his power and his goodness on you. He gives you opportunity. He opens doors. He gives you life. And then he says, I want you to value that relationship I have with you. So in other words, we play a role. We're to respond to his grace and to his gifts. And that's where we come in, maintaining our side of the covenant. We're called to be image bearers. You see, that's our job. You and me, we have a job. We have a role. Our role in creation is to be image bearers. We're to mirror God to the world. That's what we're here to do. That's, part, that's our side of the covenant, to say, God, I love you. I acknowledge you. I acknowledge your goodness and your grace and your provision, and I want to mirror that goodness, grace, and provision to the world and acknowledge you and tell as many people as I can about you. That becomes our role, and so we're to be faithful to obey his mandates that he's established and to protect that relationship. But as we know, Adam and Eve screwed it up royally. 
They decided we don't really want to do that. They declared their independence from God and said, you know, I don't really need God. I don't really need a relationship with him. I can call my own shots. I can forge my own destiny. I can do my own thing. And, and what was the result of that? We see that in chapter 3 of Genesis. It's the world's first ruins. Everything was ruined. Adam and Eve's relationship got ruined. It became a power play battle between two. Relationship with the world went off, the, off kilter. We got hurricanes and brokenness and thorns and thistles and we got sweat and women now physically are, are in pain and giving birth and so there was a lot of fallout, huge fallout. Their fractured relationship was the worst of it all. The world's first ruins showed up when human beings violated, went against the covenant of creation. And there were other covenants too. There were a covenant with Noah. There was a covenant with Abraham as well. But I want to fast forward from that point in time to the covenant that Nehemiah is referencing and thinking about in his day. And that is the covenant God had, the agreement God had with the nation of Israel itself. And it's the, a covenant that desires a close relationship with his people. And it's a covenant that opened the door to blessing, but also opened the door to things falling apart. We read about this in verse 13 of Deuteronomy 11, this covenant he had with his people. He says, so if you faithfully obey the commands I'm giving you today, to love the Lord your God and to serve him with all your heart and with all your soul, then I will send rain on your land in its season both autumn and spring rain, so that you may gather in your grain and new wine and oil. I will provide grass in the fields for your cattle. You will eat and be satisfied, but be careful. Be careful. Or you'll be enticed to turn away and worship other gods and bow down to them. Here God's saying that if you follow me, you're going to be blessed in so many ways. Immense blessing just, just grows and builds the more faithful and we are to him and the more we have that track record of saying yes to him that our lives get, there's greater blessing. And God's saying it's going gonna, it's gonna to grow exponentially in your life, but be careful because you're going to be tempted to replace me. You're going to be tempted to take yourself and say, you know what? I, I can take your place, God. I'm a better God than you are. I can put other things, other priorities, other values. I'll constantly hear a chorus of people around me saying, you don't need to be serious about me, about God, and you'll be tempted to find another alternative God. But in the end, there's two different outcomes to the choice that you make. And he describes this as you take Deuteronomy 11 forward. There's only two outcomes. He says, I'm setting before you today blessing and a curse. The blessing if you obey the commands of the Lord your God that I'm giving you today. The curse if you disobey the commands of the Lord your God and turn from the way that I commanded you today by following other gods which you have not known. Now, we kind of read this, and it hits you like a sledgehammer. I mean, there's certain verses, passages in the Bible, it's like, boom, like, boom, man, like, I, I just got hit 
with a sledgehammer. And we love this idea of blessing, that God is going to bless and all that. We love that. But when we associate God with a curse, whoa, wait, wait a minute. Um, I'm seriously uncomfortable right now. Like, I don't want that. I don't want to hear that. I don't like that. Um, it's the reason that a lot of times these passages are ignored in preaching and teaching. You go to churches, you don't hear this. It's a big part of the Old Testament. You don't hear it because it's not, it, it kind of goes against. It offends our sensibilities. We, it kind of makes God look bad, so we think. So we're going to avoid this idea of God being associated with a curse. But actually, this is not a proof text. This isn't just one example this concept is actually core to the life of Israel. It's so important that, in fact, Israel did something very unusual to kind of hammer the point home. You see, Israel, as it entered the promised land, immediately saw in front of them two mountains. They were twin mountains called Mount Gerizim and Mount Ebal. So they just entered the promised land. They just walked through, and there are these two mountains right in front of them. They're twin mountains, and one mountain, Mount Gerizim, is called the Mount of Blessing. The other mountain right next to it, very close, is called Mount Ebal, the Mount of Cursing. And in between was this valley. And God said to the people one day, he said to Moses, get the people ready, we're going to go do something. And he's like, what are we doing? He goes, you're going to see. And he took six tribes of Israel and he placed them on Mount Gerizim. And he took six tribes, the other six tribes, and he put them on Mount Ebal. And in between was this valley and the Levites occupied the valley between the two. And the Levites began to read the commands of God, his, his Torah, his word. He began to read it to them. And as they read the blessings of God, as he got to the end of the blessing, as the Levites spoke out loudly for all to hear, the entire group of people on Mount Gerizim would then, at the end of a pronouncement of blessing, say, with this thunderous roar, thousands of people on this mountain, all in unison, would say, Amen. And it would resound through the valley. And they would say it over and over again every time there was a blessing. Amen. Just this huge, huge like cacophony of sound throughout the valley. And then when the Levites read the curses, the things they were not to do, every time they got to the end of a curse, all the people on Mount Ebal would do the same thing. They would say with one thunderous roar, amen. And it would just resonate to all the people. Because God in that moment was making it crystal clear that there's only two ways to go. There's only two things that we can do. There's blessing or there's a curse. And he's making it clear to them as they enter the promised land that it's gonna be a lot of temptation to take the wrong route. And he didn't want them to do that. So imagine hearing that. Have you ever heard thousands and thousands of people just kind of, just in one voice, say the same thing, amen? It must have been indelibly marked in their minds. Every leader was just shaken and by this and, and could not forget it. 
what they, saw, what they heard and saw. Imagine the impact on the leaders of Israel this, to experience this. Imagine the impact on parents. Imagine the impact on a little kid. Remember that when we all got on the mountain? God's just making it clear here that we have a path we can follow him or we can reject him. And we love the idea of blessing, but we hate the idea of a curse. But if we're not careful, we could misinterpret what that means. We could draw the wrong conclusion. In fact, if we were to focus, and maybe you've read some of the Old Testament, you can read some verses in the Old Testament, passages in the Old Testament, and if you hyper-focus on that tree and don't know the total context, you can draw an entirely wrong conclusion about who God is and what he's like. Because this is what God is saying as he brought people to Mount Gerizim and Ebal. He's saying this, that life is divided into two distinctive pathways, and God wants more than anything else for all of us to choose the right route. This is what God is saying here. God is putting before us two distinct pathways, and he's given us the freedom to choose. God here is not cursing individuals. He's not cursing people. But what it's saying is that God has set up a world structure in such a way that certain paths are blessed, the path that follows him and loves him first. That path is blessed. But a path that rejects him is cursed. It's different. You know, one of the things that I, I do is I, I try to find Netflix shows. We talk about that every once in a while. And I've been watching some from like ancient times, like uh, Roman, I find that interesting. And there's Greek times and all that. But if there's one thing that is kind of universal about some of these ancient people is that most people li live day by day in abject terror of God. Total, total freaked out terror about God because they were always afraid that they were going to make a God angry, that they were going to offend God. And in fact, by serving and loving one God, another God who might be a little more powerful could say, why did you do that? They're jealous. So man, now you're really screwed up because like, I don't know what to do. Everybody was afraid. People would sacrifice their children to try to make Apollo happy and a lot of vile, evil things happen. But God is not saying that he curses people like he's Zeus with a lightning bolt. He's saying there's a path that's cursed and there's a path that's blessed. And what we choose determines the outcome in our own lives. It means God is not the bully in the sky. It means God is not up there loving to punish us, that he's angry, he's a legalistic God. He's having a temper tantrum, you know, because he's in a bad mood. Like, I mean, he's, he's in a bad mood, so he's going to make some of these human beings down there. Let's make them pay. He's not easily offended, ready to curse us, because, well, he just doesn't like what we're doing. So I'm, I'm not going to curse you. I'm going to curse you. And then the angels laugh. Hey, this is great. Yeah, curse another one. Curse, yeah. No, that's Greek mythology. That's not what has happened here at all. In fact, I think an analogy here would be helpful. You see, God is the police officer who pulls you over, not because he loves giving tickets, not because he, lo he loves following and meeting a quota, not because he, he loves enforcing uh, every, every possible way you broke the code of law. 
No, God is a police officer who pulls you over, who kind of talks to you in a firm way to set you straight because he knows the road well, that there's a curve that you don't see. He pulls you over because he wants you to avoid a crash. That's what God wants. He wants us to avoid ruin. He wants to avoid the crash. He's not the legalistic God that wants to write tickets and put a line in the sand and dare you to cross it and then gleefully say, you did, so I get to punish you. Wow, what a great day. That's not God at all. He's the one who says, I see where the road is going and I don't want you to go there. And so the ruins that, that can get created by our own decisions, he knows where it's leading. Sometimes we're collateral damage in this world. He knows how we respond to that damage is a very, very big deal. And he knows the blessed path as well. He wants us to stay on track. I think sometimes these ruins that, that we experience are, are because of our decisions. We've dabbled with a dark path. We've taken the wrong route. We've aligned ourselves with the, with the wrong way. Sometimes our problems are are because others have done that and our parents treated us in such a way or we have neighbors that did this or a family member and, and again, we get hurt. We incur brokenness. We carry scars because of what's been done to us. But our ruins are not because God hates us or is angry or invective. No. He says sometimes no he sets up guardrails on the road to keep us off the cliff because he wants us to stay on the blessed road. He wants us to prosper. And so God's not trying to ruin us or restrict us, take away our fun. No, he's like, he says no. No, he's saying to the woman at work, don't go to lunch with your male coworker. Don't go, don't do a one-on-one -on -one with them. You're married you know in your heart you're tempted, this is a bad idea, don't do it. Don't flirt, you know, text and flirt with somebody who's not your spouse. Don't do that, don't go there because you could be tempted. There's a good chance you could burn your life to the ground, don't do it. Don't take those intoxicants, I'm gonna just drink my way out of this problem, pop some pills, smoke some weed, just because I gotta get through it, I mean, I, I gotta find a way to cope, and, and we find that we don't cope well that way. Intoxicants aren't the answer to our problems at all. Some people say, oh, I'm just gonna bail out of church, it's too stressful in this world, and I, I don't know, do I need community, and you know, what do I do there? And it's like, well, no, the enemy wants us to bail out on church and community because he knows that God has a word in season for us every week, a word to equip us to deal with something he sees down the road. He sees down the road what's happening Thursday. He sees what's happening down the road on Friday. We don't, but he does, and he has a word in season to help us navigate that. So don't step away from it. Stay on the blessed path. God ultimately comes. He hits the siren. He pulls us over. He gives us a stern warning because he wants us to avoid the crash. But despite the warnings, Israel didn't listen. She basically said, you know what? I like the idea of God, but I don't like the idea of his leadership. 
So I'm going to go do my own thing. And as a nation, they did. They turned away from the covenant. They violated the covenant. They said, God, we don't need to listen to your mandates and commands and stuff like that. We don't need to spend energy cultivating this relationship. That's not important. We have other ways to prosper besides being connected and close with you. And she took the wrong path. She made the wrong decision. And ultimately, she paid a huge, a huge price. Israel was taken into exile. Her, her country was overwhelmed. Her influence shrank. Her lands became smaller. Her freedom was taken away. Her temple was destroyed. The temple being that very place where heaven and earth intersected. That's what the temple was. It was the place where God himself uh, came down to this earth and in the Holy of Holies, His life and presence were there among God's people. The temple was a big deal. The temple was gone. And now the walls had turned to rubble and the gates had been burned. Life didn't get better because they said, God, we don't need you. No, actually, it got way, way worse. The story of Israel in the Old Testament is the story of failure, of squandered opportunity, of blessings that were missed out on, and in fact, many, many broken dreams. It's a cautionary tale for you and me today that the path away from God, it's enticing. The path away from God is gonna be plenty of people that are gonna tell you to take it. The path away from God never, ever works out well. But in the midst of the ruins, there was hope because Nehemiah knew something. He knew something profound and powerful and life-changing and history-altering. He knew something that he tapped into that others weren't seeing, but he saw it because God allowed him to see it. He knew something about this God, this covenant God. He knew something about Hesed, God's loyal love. And he appeals directly to God's loyal love. He appeals to this covenant God's heart because he knew, as the psalmist knew, that God was a forgiving, gracious God. The psalms were known at this time. And the psalmist says in Psalm 103, something Nehemiah knew for himself, that the Lord is compassionate and gracious. He's slow to anger, abounding in love. He will not always accuse nor will he harbor his anger forever. He does not treat us as our sins deserve or repay us according to our iniquities. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his love for his, those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed our transgressions from us. This speaks of God's amazing covenant love. This speaks of God's amazing gracious love. This speaks of God's amazing loyal love that not only does he set a prescribed path of blessing and says, please walk in it. I'll guide you in it. I'll set up the guardrails so that at the end of the day, you look back and say, I'm so glad I took that road. Not only does he set that up, but he also comes to us when we go off, when we get off 
our way. We get off the path. We take that way that's cursed and we're like, wow, we've dabbled with darkness and we screwed it up. We've made bad decisions. We failed ourselves. We failed other people. We failed God and we feel like maybe we're damaged goods. God comes along and says, you're not damaged goods. No, return to me, come to me and I'll restore you. I'm compassionate. I'm forgiving. I'm a God of mercy. I'm loyal to you. Come back and I will restore you. I think today this is great news for us, whether it's with overall societal things going on or personally. I think it's great news for us even in a society that, that many would say, most would say is in disarray. It's in ruins now or heading in that direction. Most people, according to Gallup, would say that's the case. But this also gives us as God's people a huge opportunity to do our job, to be the people that we were created to be, that God designed us to be in the creation covenant, to be God's image bearers. That's your job. That's my job. That's our role. We're to be image bearers. You and I are supposed to mirror God to the world. We're to be the people who say, out of all the distractions, all the false gods, all the idolatry, all the things that claim to be so important that will fail us time and time again, that I'm a person who acknowledges you, God. I'm a person that accepts and understands that the grace you've given me. I'm a person that says, God, I'm grateful for your goodness in my life. I acknowledge you and I want to tell others. I want to tell the world I'm not ashamed. I'm bold for you. God, because you are good to me. The solution is not political to society's problems. It's deeply spiritual. It's you and me in community doing what God said we should do, mirroring God to each other, treating each other in, with a respectful way, coming together to love each other as we love God, loving our community being a people of grace and forgiveness ourselves. If we get that right, the scripture says, if my people, that's us, called by my name, will humble themselves and say, oh, God, I just want to do what you want me to do. Humble ourselves and, and pray and seek my face. God says that you'll be the catalyst for healing in the land. We've got a great opportunity to turn things around by being the people God wants us to be. But maybe our ruins are personal. And again, we feel that we've failed God and others. We feel like we're damaged goods, that there might be no recovery for us, that we've ruined things. We've got so much rubble on our chest we can barely breathe. We've burned important things down to the ground and we feel they can never be restored. But God says, your failure is not final. I will do a new work if you let me. Because God's like that father whose kid, whose kid rejects him, whose kid doesn't want anything to do with him anymore. God is like that father whose, whose kids just rejected them. But the father says, I will not give up on you. There is hope that things can get better. God is that father who, who sits at home and waits by the door. God is that father who says, yeah, I know you got off track, but I'm leaving the light on because I'm hoping you'll come home. So today, if you've fallen short, and we all have, I have, 
you have. All of us have fallen short of the glory of God. We've all sinned. We've all lived in self-willed ways. God's saying to you, no matter how bad the ruins may look, no matter how heavy that rubble might feel on your chest, come home, return, and I will heal you. Let's pray.